Greetings, and welcome to the Tapestry Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Turner. Tapestry is the adoption and foster care ministry of Irving Bible Church in Irving, Texas. And speaking of Irving Bible Church, we are recording today from Town Square at Irving Bible Church. Joining me today is Bruce Kendrick of Embrace Texas. Hi, Bruce. Hey, Chris. Bruce, I wanted to uh, have you on so we could talk about the work that Embrace Texas is doing. Uh, So tell us a little bit about what Embrace Texas does. Yeah, Embrace got started in 2007 at a small uh, 200-member, 100-year-old Baptist church, kind of on the outskirts of uh, the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And over time, we've just developed into a ministry that provides direct services and partners with churches uh, there in our county, and then uh, uses what we're able to pilot and do well to serve children and families kind of across the continuum of care, all the way from prevention through post-adoption, transition services for youth aging out. Uh, to other parts of, of the state and other parts of the country. So uh, God's just opened doors and, um, you know, in his, his great sense of humor, given us an opportunity <laughs> to to, uh, to be a voice um, for children and families and, and uh, also for the church at, at the government level. So what do you see happening right now with regard to child welfare in the state of Texas? Well, one of the um, big things that, that we continue to come up against, and I think this is true across the country, not just in the state of Texas, is just the lack of um, quality foster and adoptive homes. Mm -hmm. But what's unique about what's happening in Texas is that we have uh, some complexities going on within our government and within the way that the Department of Family and Protective Services is organizing itself or reorganizing itself in that um, the department is is going through... uh, a new structure called foster care redesign where they're attempting to get out of foster care at some level and do just more of the the management and quality control of it Mm -hmm. and therefore outsource uh, the direct service component to private agencies who have typically done uh, you know a a large portion of the work across the state anyway what makes that complex is that we're doing that um, in in only one area currently Mm -hmm. and uh, that area for an an example um, is the Fort Worth area. And so they have um, children who are coming into care there in Tarrant County and Johnson County. Um, and they're able to place children outside of their, what they call a catchment area or outside of their region. Okay. Um, so for instance, into the County that I live in. Right. Um, but the children who are in my County cannot then reciprocate into the open homes and families in their County. And so um, I, What's what's especially hard about that right now is is we have more than a hundred uh, foster and adoptive homes that are open above the number of kids we have in care from our county. Okay. Um, but now that we have this influx of children from Tarrant, from Dallas, and um, we're not able to um, we're not able to reciprocate, so our kids are end up being placed in Amarillo and oh, Abilene wow. and El Paso. I mean, just crazy distances. Um, and so it, it's it's causing a bit of, of uh, confusion and frustration across the board. And unfortunately, this redesign effort is going to take years to figure out. So we're not looking at a short-term fix. We're looking at, you know, 5 to 10, maybe even 15 years until the entire state is really under this new structure. In addition, the state is going through a, um, a federal lawsuit that has responded to some of the... the um, the neglect on on the part of the state uh, for some of our highest needs kids who mm-hmm. have lingered in care, and um, many of them in residential treatment centers that were not, um, oh gosh, the term is, is um, escaping me, but um, they just weren't quality 
facilities mm-hmm. and um, you know child welfare as a whole is is difficult because it's not something that you know we have like this um, kind of profitable business uh, model for where you know funds are coming in it's it's our tax dollars that are that are right. funding child welfare so um, anyhow through this lawsuit um, just changes have been made and some of our residential treatment programs and centers have been shut down so even though we only have about 10 percent of our foster care population in these residential centers that are the highest needs kids um, when you shut one of those down you you put those highest needs kids back into the general population of of uh, of children and and that makes it that much more difficult right. on top of the things that are already difficult in the foster care system where we've got a high rate of turnover of our frontline caseworkers. We've got a high rate of turnover of foster and adoptive families. That's true across the country where more than 50% of foster families no longer foster one year after their first placement. Mm. So um, just the sustainability of the system as a whole is, is really tenuous. And we just got a new commissioner for the Department of Family and Protective Services. And um, I've yet to meet with him. I've got a meeting scheduled at the beginning of December, I believe, but um, uh, he's kind of coming in and cleaning house and, and just addressing some of the systemic issues that we think need to be changed, but that change takes time and it's hard right. and getting you know ref- new leaders in that have fresh ideas mm. and uh, are ready to lead in new ways and, and take steps forward and be creative and think outside the box um, you know, has its growing pains. That seems to be the biggest struggle, I think, with foster care right now is that we're so trapped in this old way of doing things and there's no room for those new ideas to come in. What do I, you, how do you yeah. see working with that? Yeah, I think even more so, you know, when we think of the old the old ideas as people who are engaged in, in child welfare, you know, we think of the old ideas being like, well, just, you know, your typical foster care and recruitment efforts and those types of things. Um, I think the masses are still working under the premise of children's homes and orphanages because we still get approached from families and volunteers and people who just, for whatever reason, God's moved in their heart and they want to go and invest. And they say, you know, where can I go to visit children? Um, You know, is there a children's home or orphanage Mm. nearby? And we're like, you know, it doesn't really work like that anymore. Mm -hmm. And it's almost as if we, we as a, as a society forgot to tell ourselves that we're no longer functioning in an institutional setting. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, the premise that, that I think the state is working under is that uh, families realize that they have to open their homes to meet the needs of these children. And when families turn around and say, well, no, I just thought these kids went to a children's home, right. there's a real disconnect there that says, yes, we need your money, you know, in regards to taxes to fund this system, but even more so, we need your marriage and we need your family and we need your home. We need your community. Um, and, and that's, that's missing across the board mm. is that concept. Cause it's much easier to give, give your taxes or give, uh, you know, to a nonprofit. Right. It's a lot harder when we're giving of our families, we're giving of our marriages to especially the highest needs kids, but, um, you know, really any child who's been traumatized, neglected or abused. And I, I think the thing that continues to come back to my mind is, when we look at our state um, and when we look at our country and, and see child welf- welfare failing or at the very least struggling, um, we tend to look at the government and go, you know, how could you? How could you not get this right? How could, right. You, how could you not care for our most vulnerable population without realizing um, that we should be looking in the mirror and, uh, and addressing the fact that uh, when our government is going through a lawsuit, we are the ones who are being sued. sued. Right. <laughs> 
So um, anyhow. It's really fascinating that you, you mentioned that mindset that it appears we're still trapped in. Um, our youngest we adopted from Rwanda, and he was the last non-special needs child adopted out of the country before they shut everything down to focus on creating a foster care system there. And I've been back uh, since then. We, we work with a, a ministry that funds a group home, which is technically an orphanage, even though there are no quote-unquote orphanages left in Rwanda. But there really are, because they're having the exact same problem just mentioned. There's not a mindset there yet among the population that they need to be the ones to step up to foster these kids and adopt these kids. Yeah. And so, yeah, that, that really struck me when you said that, that, you know, here's what we think of as a third world country that's struggling to get out of the orphanage mindset. And we're really still struggling with it here ourselves. And I think the, the thing that, that makes it even harder for me is I have taken on this mindset that I've got to be accountable and responsible for what happens in my county. Mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, kind of boundary wise demographics or just proximity wise, that's as much as I can be personally accountable for. And right. Even that's a bit of a stretch. But what I'm finding is, is as we have about 150 kids in foster care from our county, and even though we have 100 more open foster homes than we have kids in care, um, I'm looking at bordering counties, and they have way more kids in care, exponentially more kids in care than they have um, children, I'm sorry, than they have open homes. And I think that the premise that I worked from for, for a long time was these major urban centers were the real problem. So my concern was when, when you look at white flight as, as families moved out to the suburbs, um, I was under the impression that that's where the slack was being picked up. Mm. But what we're seeing is it's not. Um, it continues on out to the suburbs and that there's really no one stepping up in a comprehensive way to look at both the continuum of care and even just the, the critical mass necessary for foster adoptive families. Um, it's kind of like an out of sight, out of mind thing, right? Undoubtedly. You, 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 yeah. you remove yourself from the situation where the situation is, is really the deepest and you just forget about it. Yeah. And so I, I find myself now being pulled into neighboring counties mm. to go and work with the churches there and say, hey, you've got to own this too. We're owning it in our county already, but we're now having kids from your county come to our county and we need you to pick up the slack from what I thought was mm. the slack from you know the major, major urban centers. So uh, again, it, it doesn't seem like anyone is, um, you know, is off the hook on this, right? And and everybody does have to be engaged at, at the local level. So speaking of um, being off the hook, I wanted to ask you about why is the idea that child welfare is the church's job both um, incomplete and unhelpful? I think for a number of reasons. Um, you know, in, in being involved in this area of ministry, I hear this a lot of the church saying, these are our children, this is our job. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think from a practical standpoint, um, if we look at the, the mass organization that is required to meet the comprehensive needs of the children and families that we're serving, um, the church has done a great job on some surface level things. Um, as of late, but we haven't looked at the continuum by any means. And at the same time, um, when we look at just financially, what's, what's being spent to meet those needs, um, just in the state of Texas alone, we spend $4.4 billion on child welfare each year. There's not an organization in our state. Uh, there's not a, 
there's not a church or a group of churches in our state that could ever replace that mm-hmm. ever. Um, I mean, I'd like to be idealistic. I like, I'm hopeful. Um, but I think it's unhelpful for the church to take a posture of we're going to work the government out of a job mm. when um, we haven't really counted the cost of what it would mean for the church to work the government out of a job. Right. At the same time, I don't know that it's biblical. Um, I meet with a number of legislators uh, here in Texas specifically, but also at the federal level who ha- have said to me, um, both from city and county and state officials, who have said something to the effect of, you know, this is the church's job. We shouldn't even be doing this. Hmm. Um, and, and they tend to kind of cite, you know, something in the New Testament around James 127, or it's kind of loose, but um, I, I've started to push back on that. Originally, I was like, you're right, this is the church's job. We should be doing this, and I'm doing my best type of thing. Um, but I've started to push back on that, uh, primarily from a, a passage out of Jeremiah 22 that says, does it make you a king to have more and more cedars? Did not your father have enough food and drink? Mm-hmm. He did what was right and what was just, and so all went well with him. He defended the cause of the poor and the needy, and so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord. And as I've pondered on that passage, and as I've thought about our, our responsibility to, to meet the needs of these children as the church, we look at like Matthew 25, and obviously James one twenty seven, and so on and so forth. Um, I think we fail to realize that the government doesn't necessarily have to be entirely separate. Um, and, and we've maybe confused that, that concept mm-hmm. um, to the point that uh, we've disengaged from partnering with the government um, and basically said, no government, like you figure it out. And if you can't figure it out, then you failed. And then we'll come in and pick the pieces up. Right. Um, and, and that's just created a real struggle. And so I find it to be more helpful and more consistent with scripture uh, for us to understand the government's role and to understand that they, they do represent us um, in, a, in many times a large way. They, they do play a part. And yet at the same time, if we do not play our part at the local level, if churches aren't engaged, um, then we are simply just outsourcing it, assuming that our tax dollars are going to go there. And if we're serious about um, complaining or, or um, being disgruntled about how the government is doing that, then if we continue the route that we've gone, our, our only real, logical, reasonable um, response should be take more of our tax dollars because that's, how, that's been our response. Right. Is it's the government's role, so we'll pay our taxes and you do it. Um, and it's going to require a whole lot more of tax dollars in order to do that on top of you know, all the other things that get implied when, when we have that posture, uh, both for mental health and education and the court systems and so on. So. I think that's really where where I kind of have have, um, both challenged the government and at the same time challenged the church and and looked in the mirror myself and said, you know what, nobody's, um, as I said, nobody's off the hook here. Uh, Everybody's got to be engaged at some level. It's just as vital for the government to be involved as it is for the church to be involved, as it is for communities to be involved. Um, There's lots of rhetoric that goes around, and and, uh, yeah, I, I just think we mean well. Um, there's lots of people saying things like, these are our kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can appreciate that to a degree that, that um, you know, it does take a village and it does take everybody in, in, engaging in, uh, you know, in the needs. But at the same time, it takes a family. Um, before it takes a village, it takes a family right. uh, to raise a child. So, um, you know, just being thoughtful about that and understanding that um, 
it, maybe it, it feels compelling to say things that sound good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but how helpful is that when we practically start to implement, um, you know, what that means? Mm-hmm. Because if those, if those kids truly are our kids, um, then would they ever have been in foster care to in begin with? In the first with? place, right. Yeah. So in that vein, uh, how can the church as a body be more strategic in working on this child welfare issue at the local, state, even the federal level? Yeah. I, I've found over the years, when, when we first got started as a ministry, we very much had the heart that uh, we wanted to come in and equip churches mm. and um, build up their lay leaders, allow their church staff and their pastors to not have one more thing on their plate, to be able, but to, be able to empower their, their congregations to go and do this work at the local level and, and, uh, and organize um, within themselves. And, and our, our hope as a nonprofit was to go in and equip them and then assume that they were going to take off with that um, that mantle mm-hmm. and, and carry that banner. Um, and the reality has been that, uh, you know, when you have a volunteer lay led ministry, uh, bandwidth is limited, funding is limited, resources right. are limited, and uh, they play an incredibly crucial part. However, um, something that brings churches together that, that allows them to collaborate with a nonprofit who can carry some of the liability for programs that give them more direct access to children and families is needed. Um, again, it's not to say that local church ministry is not also needed. Um, it is just to say that uh, some, some entity that can partner with the government, that the government, rather than partnering with a bunch of individual churches can mm-hmm. do, um, can come together and have one kind of central organization at the local county level um, that, that they can partner with and then partner with each church from there. I think examples like uh, Four Kids of South Florida, where pastors came together, recognized the need, mm-hmm. and went, hey, we want to do something strategic and meaningful, not just... Um, give lip service to it. Uh, the Orphan Care Alliance out of Louisville, Kentucky with Darren Washhausen, um, another great example of that. And so that's the, the type of thing that, that comes to mind as, as we've now rethought kind of how Embrace has functioned is, is um, yes, there are churches who have great ministries like Tapestry that don't need a nonprofit um, mm-hmm. to do a whole lot. They might need a nonprofit to do one or two things, but for the most part, Tapestry does incredible work um, all on its own, and it's it's actually you know just a trendsetter that has been going for years. Um, but we also work with lots of smaller churches that don't have the resources or don't have the leaders um, to invest in this, and so they can benefit from a nonprofit that can say, "Hey, here are some things that you can get engaged and involved in." Again, we're not trying to get you to outsource ministry to us. We're trying to give you a platform that you or a framework that you can mm-hmm. build up ministry on to the point that when you get there and you no longer need us, you can go out on your own and do everything that God has placed in your heart and in your mind to do. Yeah. I always find it interesting how here in, in the United States, we seem to put a lot of emphasis on the federal government and what it can do for us. You know, just pay attention to our current elect, you know, presidential election. Yeah. And when on a day-to-day basis, our lives are so much more affected by what happens at the local and state level than it ever does, you know, by what the federal government's doing. And we just don't seem to put that importance a lot of times on the local and state level. And I think, you know, child welfare is definitely one of those areas where that's greatly re- reflected. We're always thinking, I, th- I think when most people think of, you know, the government, and for those of you who aren't here, see me do the air quotes, uh, <laughs> we usually think of the federal government, you know, yeah. when it's really the local and state level, we where we need to be focusing on our efforts. Well, and I think the reason why that is is because typically uh, 50% of a state's child welfare budget is coming from federal tax dollars. Mm-hmm. 
And so, you know, if, if you're following the money and who's controlling that money, you know, it is mostly the federal government. However, there is a responsibility with state funds um, and even county and city funds, much less on the city funds level. But but counties are, are typically have dollars that they're allocating uh, towards child welfare. Um, the real confusion there that I've experienced, especially with our county officials, is nobody really knows who's responsible for what. Mm. Um, so our county dollars are supposed to be going to help supplement state dollars to pay for frontline caseworkers, right. or are they supposed to be going just to help supplement basic tangible needs of foster and adoptive families? Mm. Um, or should they be looking into more strategic things like um, housing for kids when there isn't a placement for them so that they're not sleeping in CPS offices and, and we're developing something in some kind of center where you know children are able to, to be assessed and transition well into foster care before they get placed, those types of ideas and, and uh, or residential treatment and so on. Um, and so there's not really a designation that says federal money goes for these things, state money goes for these things, county money goes for these things, and city money and so on um, that, that I think has provided or, or caused some confusion mm-hmm. among officials to say who's, who's accountable for these children and for what. Right. And that's kind of a double-edged sword, too. You know, sometimes, you know, if you get too regimented in where your funds are going, then sometimes that, that, that gives you the flexibility when a, a need arises elsewhere to reallocate those funds yeah at the same time so yeah yeah for sure and and another thing is is that our our, our pastors did not go to seminary and get a social work degree right you know they're not child welfare professionals uh, you know they may have done some counseling or something like that but um, they're ill-equipped mm-hmm. and uh, to, to handle this however I haven't found a pastor that that is opposed to it. Um, I think they very much see often the biblical mandates to care for orphans and, mm-hmm. and theologically have thought through that this starts with the heart of God and who he is as a father to the fatherless. Um, but again, we, it, from, from the posture of the government saying this is the church's responsibility or even the church saying the church's responsibility and then not actually organi- organizing ourselves in any strategic or thoughtful way mm. um, to actually make it our responsibility and be accountable for that, has just been uh, a, a whole lot of, I think, empty words that mean well. And so I, I, I don't mean to talk down to anybody who's, who's used those things because, quite frankly, I've used them. Right. And this is more of a confession and a, uh, and a reflection than it is an accusation on anybody else. I think I'm, I'm waking up to the realities mm. of what's happening around us and recognizing the government's not evil. Um, they, they very much recognize the need, probably even more so than we do. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we've got to be better partners as the church. So as the church, uh, what is something simple that we can do to start alleviating some of these issues now? Yeah, I, we, for the longest time, um, tried to do just like basic tangible needs help. And I, I feel like this is almost overly simplistic and why it took us so long to actually figure out, I don't know. But the thing that, that when I talked to our local CPS office uh, and just trying to offer help to them, they were like, hey, you know, there's just a lot of you. There are a lot of churches that want to help here and there and kind of projecty stuff. Mm. Um, but none of you are really sticking around. You're not really providing a platform for us to communicate or help out. And, um, and so we stepped back from kind of our resource closet idea where we were collecting new and gently used items and redistributing them and spending a lot of bandwidth organizing all of that, mm. recognizing that bandwidth is this major limitation as it is. Right. Um, so we set up a, like a Facebook group that was private and that all caseworkers and, and agencies um, 
and investigators could go and use as well as local foster and adoptive families use to just express their needs. Mm. And then people from our community have joined that and said, like, hey, I may not be available all the time to help out. I may not be even be able to open my home due to lack of space or just where we are in life or what have you. Um, but when I see a need that I can meet, I, I now have a platform that I can go right. use that. And it and doesn't require any extra bandwidth from me because we've facilitated that to or delegated that to uh, some volunteers just to oversee and manage. Um, and so that's been, you know, just one of those like really super easy entry points that I think uh, anybody could do, anybody could set up to help support their their local agencies uh, to, to help meet some of those needs. I mean, just to give an example, we had a caseworker or CASA, I believe it was, dealing with a family that was reunifying mm. um, with their kids but could not reunify because mom did not own a bed. Wow. And so um, the CASA worker went on and said, hey, we're trying to reunify you know, reunification being the goal and, and uh, kinsman redeemer kind of idea, I think for the church really expressing that, that we want, we want to promote restoration, not just adoption and foster right. care. So very much behind that. Um, and we had a family step up and say, I'll give my bed mm. um, so that kids can go back home and their family can be restored. Uh, it was just an awesome uh, expression of the church uh, being able to step in and help out and meet that, that very tangible need in a very simple way. And I think that's something like you said, it's really been missing because I think for a lot of people, when they think of the church needing to take care of orphans, this means I need to be adopting. And, you know, we know not everyone's called to that. It takes, it takes certain people with a certain mindset and a certain heart for that thing to answer that call. And that's okay. You know, some people are are called for different things, but this is a way, like you just said, that everyone, whether you're called to adopt or, or to be a foster parent or not, can still help take care of those foster kids. Yeah, and I want to even clarify that point because I think that's something that 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 I really you know kind of bought into when I first started fostering was mm. this this idea of calling. Um, and I think we can blanketly say, biblically say, that everyone is called. Uh, just how you're called right. and what your response it's to it look is. Different, right? Yeah, it's going to look different. And so it's just as vital for the 5% of people who are opening their homes and fostering or adopting to open their homes and foster and adopt as it is for the 95% to engage in whatever way God has called them and equipped them and led them that they are gifted. They have resources uh, to be engaged in this because, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really quickly become, oh, it's so great that you are passionate about this ministry. And so that this is your thing. Mm-hmm. Um, when it, this isn't a your thing, my thing, their thing, um, and you can opt out of it or check the box if you'd like, um, as, a, as a part of being um, a part of the body of Christ, being identified uh, in his, as his bride, um, we're, we're both evangelical and, and we are worshipers of the one true God, and yet uh, we are also cares of the least of these. Mm. Um, and so no, nobody gets to just say, well, you know, that's your thing. That's my thing. Mm-hmm. Um, we all are responsible and accountable in this way because it reflects the glory of our Father. I'd like to thank Bruce for being on the podcast today. Thanks, Chris. That's good. If you have a question for us that will fit into 140 characters, you may tweet it to us at tapestryibc. If you require a bit more room, you can email us at tapestry at irvingbible.org. You may also find us on Facebook at Tapestry IBC. You can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes. Just search for Tapestry Adoption Podcast. If you have enjoyed and gotten value from this podcast, we would appreciate a review on the iTunes or Google Play Store. 
You can find more resources on our website, tapestryministry.org. If you'd like some more information about Embrace Texas, Bruce, can they find more information online? Yeah, we're at embracetexas.org or Facebook's Embrace Texas, as is Twitter. Awesome. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.